Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm series co-host Dave Anderson, and I'm with Tom Castillo, live from Los Angeles at the Organization of American Historians Annual Conference. Um, Tom Castillo is the author of Working in the Magic City, a labor history about Miami, Florida during the interwar years. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you for having me, Dave. All right, it's my pleasure. Let's dig right into it. And um, the first thing, and what I usually ask all the authors is, what's the book origin story? How did you come to write it? I think it sort of uh, started when I was working as a graduate student, actually, in the class I took, and I worked on, on my first paper was on, uh, one of my first research papers I wrote was on the uh, chauffeur conflict. And things sort of just evolved from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think deeper... It has to do with what I write about in my preface, where I talk about sort of my own work experience and observing my parents, observing my dad. I worked with my dad as a construction worker when I was 12 years old, 12, 13, 14 years old, and many more years after that, actually, several more years after that, uh, in the summertime. So I, I kind of get a sense of, of about work and the precarity of work, and that that picked my interest, and I think I continue sort of to think about that. But, I, you know, if you would have asked me, do you see yourself as a labor historian or becoming a labor historian at that point? I would have been, what, what is that? Mm-hmm. But I think since uh, I got into grad school, I sort of, I just started gravitated towards that and I started working on that. And so to sort of remind me, to actually highlight something I learned from Raymond Moll, he said, you know, urban historians often write about places they live by. So I think that sort of worked in that. that, that and you grew up in Miami, is that correct? Yes, I did. Well, I was born in Jersey, but then I, I, I moved when I was seven. Okay. And your parents, I mean, what, what are their backgrounds? So my father's from Colombia and my yeah. mother's from El Salvador. So I was always around Cubans. We were never in a niche with like Salvadorians or, or Colombians. And in fact, only afterwards when I was going for my PhD, when I would go back to Miami, there were more Salvadorians that were there. So I always like to sort of say, hay pupusas and arepas, the two sort of corn dishes that are from those two different cultures. Arepas are Colombian and pupusas uh, are Salvadorian. So I would eat those. Uh, when I got back, because the Salvadorian restaurant started opening up when I, when I started going back in the 2000s. Um, I left around 2000 from, from there. So after that point, more Salvadorian restaurants started opening up, and I started eating more pupusas when we went back. But growing up, we ate mostly arepas, because my, I spent a lot of time with my, my, uh, my paternal grandmother, who would make that. We would, I eat breakfast at her house on Sundays, you know. Okay, our next podcast will be a food, you know, <laughs> a cultural, the culture of food. Sure, yeah. In, in Miami as well, that I'm sure there's been some good books about that. I mean, there there have been 
and, and you point this out in the book, there's a lot of studies in Miami, but not one specifically dedicated to its labor history, particularly in the interwar period between World War I and World War II. And this is the niche that you've found rather fruitful in the book. Well, I originally actually had conceived of my dissertation to go into the 1960s and 70s to carry the story through trying to understand class among Cubans. Mm -hmm. And I got stuck in the 30s. <laughs> and because in part, it was just uh, the, the kind of the hard work and heavy lifting of, of developing uh, an archive, essentially, of, of records that were scattered all over the place and reading sources and trying to understand the content. And some of it was just the timing. So like in 1997, uh, the local carpenters union deposited their, their records to the University of Miami's archives. And I was the first one and probably the only person who's ever looked at that archive. And I looked at that and, you know, and that, that sort of opened me to this whole world of, of, of unionization and sort of the whole organization. And that started to shift my thinking a bit. And, and I, I approached reading newspapers, which were an important part of my research then and afterwards, in a very critical way, trying to understand the kinds of various levels of, of uh, class analysis that you can do by reading, you know, between the lines, against the threads, you know, and all that stuff. So, like, because it's not always evidence, yeah. you know, and you can understand that more when you compare it with other kinds of sources. So, in the 30s, the, um, a labor newspaper archive is sort of available. Even though the paper has started in 1919, it's not until 1933 that, that there's actually archival records of those news, that newspaper, and that really opened up things for me. Yeah. yeah, I see you really wringing out a lot of information and evidence here, but with a rather small amount of sources. It's not like you could go to a big union archive and everything would be there. You really had to work hard on this book, and, and it, it shows. Now, here's the big question, though. We're a Southern Labor Studies podcast, and we're part of the Southern Labor Studies Association. And the one thing, you know, people who study or think of Miami is, is you know, and Southern Florida in general, is that it's somewhat outside the South that based on its demographic composition, based on its primary industries, you know, service, resort, tourism, that it's not a part of Southern history. It doesn't have the same racial dynamics. It doesn't have the same industrial components to it. And yet I come away from this book <laughs> convinced that Miami in the interwar years this is Southern history. Could you talk about that for a second? No doubt, no doubt. And that's one of the things I have to sort of do in the book is to dislodge people's ideas about Miami of the present. Mm -hmm. I think Miami of the present might fall within that framework mm -hmm. because it's uh, more of a, the capital of Latin America and the Caribbean, right? It's a sort of, I don't, I don't mean to diss those other, other locations, Absolutely. but that there's a, a lot of movement and travel between these regions. And you can sort of see that happening beginning with, with the rise of airplanes and, and air travel in the 40s and afterwards. And so that changes sort of the, the trajectory of, of, you know, the centering of, of Miami. But I think up to like the 1940s, the center of Miami is really in the south. And I think the leadership is there, like E.G. Sewell, who was a, a chamber of commerce president and then mayor several times in Miami. He's from Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so this, the, and I highlight how the plurality of Miamians are southern. And so on page two of my introduction, I highlight how, you know, E.G. Sewell and others from the Chamber of Commerce stated clearly they didn't want Miami to become like Tampa 
<laughs> which they didn't want a Cuban or other kind of immigrant population there. They wanted Miami to be a certain kind. In fact, they stated clearly that they wanted to protect tourism there. So they were trying to protect a certain kind of southern hospitality, a southern kind of uh, tourist experience that was embedded in a safe notion of the exotic, I think. So, mm-hmm. so that, in that way, it was the South because of the, of the population. It was the South because it had the same kinds of racial uh, you know, uh, customs. And Jim Crow's deeply embedded in Miami. And I think Northerners who came there sort of adopted those kinds of, um, for the most part, those mm-hmm. kinds of same sentiments and attitudes. Uh, so, yeah, you have this black-white binary there. You have poor whites. You have Jim Crow, as you say. Mm-hmm. And you also have the boosters, you know, <laughs> fearful that it will gain a Caribbean population. Right. Or, you know, they want transplants, but they want transplants who confirm or conform to what they were, the boosters and the white leaders of the town would have seen as a southern you know, way of life. Yeah. yeah, I think Miami was, I think the way to pronounce it was Miami. Okay. And I'm not sure that was a Ohio, uh, you know, tendency or that there was a, it somehow linked with southern kind of uh, language. I'm not quite sure, but. <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, one of the, one of the, um, your main concepts here um, that we see is this idea that the boosters promote class harmony. And could you just explain what that term means? I'm sure everyone who studied labor history has have, have come across it, but, it, but it's a very central theme in the book. How, how would you describe it? Well, I would say that my approach to class harmony was to sort of look at it as a point of contestation and a point of also of hopeful politics. Mm-hmm. So let's let's just for a moment to stake. What if it's possible? Put away your cynicism for just a minute, right? And your realism, and say, okay, what if class harmony was possible? What would that look like? Mm-hmm. And that, that's where I found the roots of the possibility of moral economy. Mm-hmm. And that's where you could see sort of the nature of how workers, labor unions were pushing for a living wage for shorter hours. And when I discovered, for example, that carpenters were getting double pay for working overtime, and I discovered this in the carpenters' records in, in the University of Miami, uh, Maryland's sort of national archives, I was shocked to see that that was something that was possible. Because usually, I, I'm just, we've all understand the overtime to be time and a half, but that was double overtime and you know, double pay. So what that suggested to me was that they were making a claim. If you want us to work extra under this hot summer weather, you're going to have to pay us a lot more. And also, another thing, too, that they expected employers to pay for their travel to you know places that were not yet developed as much. So it was an understanding that in order for this economy to work and for this development to occur, you're going to have to incur the cost of us working for you and for all the aspects of it. So it's going to be, it, it got me pushing, pushing my thinking about moral economy as a way to understand the 20th century. In that way, too, I think moral economy became something that was... Um, a big part of the class harmony, in my viewpoint, in the sense of that it's the one end of it, the, the radical side of it. Now, as far as the boosters, yeah, they, they embrace that hokey-sounding um, framework of, of class harmony, but essentially accepting and embracing a very stark class hierarchy. And so the end of, like, chapter one, for example, I quote this, dial, this kind of dialogue between these two uh, preachers, one who sort of advocated for a social hierarchy, that God had apparently uh, accepted and, and said humans should, should adopt. 
another who another who accepted a more egalitarian perspective. And while that may not have been linked necessarily to any of the discourses or the battles that were going on, to me it was symbolic of that very dynamic that was occurring as far as trying to make this a, a city that was for workers, trying to deal with a city that was not yet quite developed and trying to fight with community, a developed community, while at the same time dealing with a population that often was not caring what was actually happening there, the tourists that were coming in, that floating population that was going out, even the temporary workers that were working there. So it seemed to me it was infused with so much class tension, which was completely missing from, from the storyline. So class harmony is, is a vehicle in, in many ways to understand and unpack class uh, in some place like, I think, the South. And it seemed to me a Southern city. Uh, like Miami, mm-hmm. with this sort of tropical dynamic, and perhaps probably the case for other parts of of, of, uh, of Florida. I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I think it's maybe, a bold maybe coastal move. too. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a bold move on your part to take um, the concept of moral economy and, like you say, move it into the 20th century. We usually associate it with, the, as you point out in the book, the writings of E.P. Thompson, and we see it fading away with the rise of a market economy. And yet you, I think, get a lot of mileage in the book out of um, seeing this as something that informs the labor activists and the progressives in this city, that this is what they're trying to bend and shape this idea of class harmony into a, a much more, an economy that um, doesn't uh, oppress workers, but actually enhances their own lives. Yeah, and also I would say extending sort of this idea of, a, of protectionism yeah. as part of that. So mm-hmm. whenever you know, I, I found these sort of interesting moments of this, this, these discussions or these debates that would occur about trying to have protectionism, like when the chauffeurs argue for making sort of fees for drivers to, for outside drivers coming into the city. For, mm-hmm. That's an example of, of moral economy. Or when women were pushing for uh, and others were pushing for uh, a local sort of farm mar- mm-hmm. market. You know, in a farmer's market, an early version of it, the curb market. It's only a quick comment I make, but these kinds of interventions of trying to understand the economy and the market as places mm-hmm. where human beings are sort of benefiting from, that it's, it's, it's defines community. That to seem, seemed to me to be an alternative to capitalist and market economy that sort of just suggested more just a transactional kind of framework. It seemed to infuse much more dynamism mm-hmm. to how we understand things and that uh, hopelessness, a, a more a hopefulness as far as workers in the community trying to, to really take ownership of the place. Mm-hmm. And it's where it spe- the book can speak to us today. Let's, let's open up you know, some parts of the book and, and, and move on to the specific chapters. Now, before we do that, though, what was Miami like in 1914? That's about where the book starts. It, what, what was it? Certainly wasn't the Miami we see today. If, if just briefly, if you could describe what was Miami in 1914. Miami is on the verge of, a, of an explosion of population. It, mm-hmm. it happens incrementally. Miami had just been incorporated in 1896, uh, and the population was just a few thousand until 1910. Uh, it starts to grow exponentially each decade after that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's sort of it's on the verge of that sort of explosion in population. And so it, it sort of embraces all the kind of aspects that we understand about city building in the, in the progressive period. And, and so there's a debate in 1920 or change of government to a, from, from a mayoral system to a commission system. And so all these kinds of aspects that we associate with progressivism with shaping the uh, prohibition was also something, mm-hmm. the wet versus the dry. That was sort of the, the feel of the, of, of the place. Um, and I think along with that, perhaps, was the sort of the growth of unionization in 1914 through 
through the World War One period. And I think that's one of the sort of aspects that were critical. Even though some of the unions I highlight, we started like in 1902, just very early in the, in the, in the city's history. And they sort of grow and they become important aspects of the construction trade. And they started to sort of... Uh, Workers start to try to organize in, in, in service trades, but they don't really are not very successful early on. Much more later on. So, fourteen was a sort of turning point, I would say, or at least a launching point of a, of a larger city. But certainly, very, very different from what we understand today. The Miami of today that we understand really begins to emerge in the post-war period, post-World War II period, and increasingly so after the Cuban Re- Revolution, right, in 1958. That's where we really see it. And in fact, I have a note in my first chapter where I highlight how. You know, the other America, as the census, one, one census report highlighted, uh, noting about the uh, Latin Americans that were living in, in Miami. We're living in this one area along Diocho, 8th Street. And so that was something that uh, I found to be interesting because only a few thousand. Yeah. And so, you know, that's not what we necessarily associate with because it just becomes sort of just mixed up. The chronology is not so clear. And I think that trying to straighten it out and get it sharper was important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think some of those traditions from early on continue to the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. but then obviously other dynamics that are happening in the larger economy in the Cold War world certainly shape things. Yeah, the, the first labor conflict you deal with in some length is this conflict between chauffeurs, which as I view it, these are the drivers that will drive tourists around, and particularly wealthier tourists, some who bring their own chauffeurs from up north, And um, as I read it. And it seems to me it's a perfect example of um, an issue that would be specific to a tourist resort town. But it also takes the shape of an issue that you would see in any other southern town. And it's, you know, we would, who is going to drive these cars for the tourists? And if you could explain that episode to us. No, I would say, yeah, so what ends up happening is that the white chauffeurs try to monopolize, essentially, uh, this trade. And and there's some black drivers who say, well, we can maybe get into this trade. And the problem they're facing there is the strict segregation that is existing in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, even though at some point in 1917 they agreed that they're going to allow blacks to drive cars, it's very restricted. And so, one of the crucial points of that that moment when they get the right to drive is that they they cannot solicit uh, customers mm-hmm. in white sections. So that basically almost eliminates them from from from, from the trade. But soon afterwards, and I'm not forgetting, maybe 1918 or so, 1917, they get a check that you start to see actually advertisements of blacks in the newspaper, which I only discover when I when I re- return to the topic for the, for my revisions and, the, and my dissertation for the book. I, I sort of added this other layer when I started to investigate the uh, the ads that were appearing. It happened just after this agreement that occurred in 1917 or 1918. I, I can't remember now. But it was uh, interesting because then it seemed like there was some opening and opportunity. And then if you look at the census numbers, 1920, 1930, blacks are clearly are entering this, into this area. Yeah. But yes, it takes on all the sort of southern dynamic, right, where they tr- the black, white chauffeurs try to, to, rel- to rely on race pride and say, this is a southern town. We're not going to ever have this kind of mixture. You, you, know, you can't imagine having a world where you have to interact with blacks. And then it's interesting some other uh, white southerners in Miami are saying, what are you talking about? We're constantly attending to black customers in our stores and so forth. And they're constantly driving their horse-drawn drays onto the, to the, to the train stations picking up. So why are you disputing this? And then you, I think what it points to is kind of a sad story. Right. And the sad story is that there are many job opportunities in Miami. 
And so what may seem as the bad white person engaging in this sort of exclusionary act, it's some of that, yes, but it also is a pathetic and desperate person trying to maintain some sense of dignity in this area that seems to be hopeful because of the nature of, of the political economy in the area. And obviously, I suspect, too, that there's a certain kind of veneer about the, of the technology of the facade of, of driving. You know, this is relatively new time for, for driving. So I think that all these things are coming together, but clearly this is not a job that's going to have a high status for the, for the 20th century uh, in, in much of the, of the economy in the country. But you can sort of see that. that uh, yeah, and I mean... It's a very good point that the white drivers are trying to monopolize this trade, and they're, the way I read it, they're rather unsuccessful. Right. And it's done that because the white elites in that are the ones who determine who will drive this new technology of the automobile. Right, right. And, and under, but underlying there is, is the, sort of the larger kind of debate about open shop and closed shop. Right. So even though there is a, perhaps a contempt for, mm. for these white drivers and, 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 and working class, and I think that's there for sure, that contempt is embroiled in an anti-unionism. I think that's sort of also a, a prevalent in, in the larger culture and in, in certainly um, affecting Miamians as well, or Miami business leaders. Yeah. Well, in the next episode you go to speaks directly to this debate over the open shop in the, in the 1920s as, as employers, as they understand it nationally, it's become a movement to... Um, you know, not hire union workers, and specifically where this plays out is in the construction trades. Yes. And Miami, as we well know, has this massive real estate boom in the 1920s. And, and throughout the period you look at, I mean, it's a boom and bust economy. And if there's one area, like you say, there's not a lot of jobs there, but when it is booming, it's construction trades. And this is the AFL, which again, we don't... I don't. We don't see as much of this in the South. Uh, a, a study of the AFL trades. Do you think that's the case? Or no, I think I think so. I think there's been some good work. I mean, um, that's been out there. That uh, I think about James Lawrence, who's done stuff on, on unemployment and mm -hmm. stuff in Georgia. That I think that's some interesting work there. And I think there are there is some, but yeah, it's not so much. I agree. Yeah. It's mostly like in Louisiana, right? New yeah. Orleans and stuff like that. Uh, some. It, there's not so much. I mean, I think, yeah. it, but I do see that there's a large, broad union unions in the AFL construction right. trades in Atlanta and in in, in, um, in Miami and, and other parts of, of Florida. Yeah. And I think it's not just the transplants. I think it's also Southerners who are actually joining these unions who are in the, becoming. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you. I didn't do a demographic compositional right. analysis of, of the members of, of the union, but I know there's a high level of unionization that that was in like the carpenters and these other trades. So that seemed to be something that was at least embraced or adopted over time by, by, by these workers. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I've lost the track of the, of the question. Well, I was saying that we, when we think of the South, particularly in the period you're looking at, we tend to focus on industrial unions on just off the top of my head. I mean, there's studies of textile industry, there's study of the um, timber workers, there's right. study of coal miners, you know, all the, all of these uh, workers who are involved in industrial unions. And then we don't see urban areas as union places or organized. And yet when we go to the construction trades, as you point out, you know, cities from Houston 
to, you know, the Carolinas have, you know, very vibrant construction trade. Yes. And especially Miami, where construction of, of hotels, of, of homes, these are where the jobs are. You know? Right. And I think that that's where the, the terrain becomes extremely tense and contested. Yeah. Uh, they basically are successful in excluding blacks. And again, I think it's this narrative of, of it's, a, it's a tragic narrative, right? Because in 1919, in the fall, where there's this sort of struggle and potential for general strike in Miami, I mean, even to sort of say the idea that's a potential general strike in the South, you know, you can see that in Seattle, right, in 1919, and maybe other parts of the country, New York, perhaps, or, or, or Chicago, like big industrial, right. the big cities, Midwest, Midwest, right, but not necessarily the South. And even though it doesn't really happen, um, there is a moment there that, as I point out, that there was some collaboration, uh, cross-racial collaboration with the hot carriers, you know, the the day laborers, the ones who carry the loads and the the job sites that were uh, staffed by by mostly black workers, black men. And they uh, are supported to some extent, or at least are not pushed out. And I think, obviously, that's embracing a hierarchical nature of, of of work, that blacks should be doing this job and so forth. And it clearly excluded from the steel trades. But again, that protectionist, I think, streak is one that I think rooted is in, in precarity. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, a racial aspect. And I think I'm not saying that it isn't. Right. I mean, there is a part to that, for sure. But I think we, I liked, what I wanted to do in the book was to focus on the precarity of that work. And, I, and I, as I highlight, 1927, right after the sort of the, the, the fall, there's, you know, one of the labor leaders who ends up starting the Labor Citizenship Committee, which was a, an amazing sort of forum where union and non-union workers could go to these meetings in the Carpenters Hall and, and have like this education. There was, like, there was talks there. I mean, I just thought, when I was reading about this, I was like, this is interesting. This is sort of a place where there was community, there was education, there was conversations, there was efforts for organizing. And Harry McClurg, who was the, the individual who ended up starting this, Mm-hmm. made a comment saying, basically, look, we're not the aristocracy of labor. I'm not sure what people are thinking. And I think that, to me, that stood up because, first of all, he was using that term, right? I'm not putting those words in his mouth. That was written in the paper, his quoting him. And so this is something that highlighted how he was recognizing and identifying this. And then this, uh, I think it was a, a structural uh, metals worker, ends up helping to organize this progressive kind of uh, entity mm-hmm. of where people are going to come together and talk about the things that are affecting Miamians. Mm-hmm. It does run a counter and it does suggest that there are possibilities for other places. So yeah, I do wonder to what extent that I think these, these narratives have been sort of muted because people have not pursued it. Part of it is because it's been difficult to, to follow. And I think the idea of class harmony, for example, opens up the possibility mm-hmm. to look at these places and say, no, there is cross struggle there. We just have to look at it from a different lens. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I hope, one of my contributions to how to think about labor history and labor history in places like the South. So in that way, my contribution is a Southern labor history contribution, trying to understand these places for places that were that were at least aspirational, at least some segments of the population, even though they dealt with very repressive conditions and a state government and local governments that were, were anathema to, to unionization. And, but even they sometimes would bow and, 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 and give some support and, and celebration of local unions in a way that boosters do all the time. Anything they can celebrate, they'll celebrate. Well, and, and this is, and see if I'm reading this correctly, is, is to sort of bring this, this chapter on the um, construction trades, is that the, 
developers and the politicians who back them are touting the closed shop or open shop, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. And they see this as a sign of class harmony, you know, that it's kind of equal rights, right? right. And the way I read the book, they're not that successful that the construction trades and the workers in the trades are able to leverage that for their own ends and, and actually are somewhat successful fighting off the open shop. Is that is that the brief? I, I think I think that's true. It what ends up happening, I think, that it's confusing mm-hmm. because you start to sort of see this and you think, oh, there's the you know the mining employer association. They're gonna they're basically a hiring agency and so forth. But they kind of fade away by the mid twenties, the mid nineteen twenties, and that story about them fading away, and the fact that the unions were sort of fighting and resisting that effort in the early twenties suggests that they never really end up having that much control. It just means that it was a highly contested arena. It just depends on what you were. If you want to stop the story of just seeing the employer association ad, it tells you that they've won. The, right. that, but I think it's not. It's not definite, and I think that's the thing. It's it's continuous content, uh, contingency mm-hmm. contestation. Yeah, and the and the construction workers don't uh, fold in a sense that right. they're they're um, you know willing to fight and to turn the language of class harmony to their own and even grow right. with the with the boom. Right, they're the high, they're at their heights in the mid like 1924-1925, right before mm-hmm. the hurricane. So yeah. yeah. Okay, let's then get to the second half. And what I think is the real unexpected part of the book and and need of it, and I think you're making some very unique and original contributions, as well as in the first half. But I want to turn to the 1930s and the Great Depression, which you spent several chapters on um, in the end of the book. And, um, you know, first thing I would start is that, and you can correct me here, but Miami is a somewhat transient city, as I read it. Would that be correct, that, especially when the Depression hits? And why would that be? I think there's two streams. I think there's a community that continues to live there. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also, trans- I think there's people who are coming to live there and they stay permanent. Mm-hmm. So that, and, there's, and there's transients. Mm-hmm. People come and go. So I think that it's it's different flows of people. Those who who've been there, those who come are going to stay there, and those who are in a revolving door. Okay. And I think that's and that's I think that what I just framed there is like how do you write that history? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's about movement, it's about change, it's about growth, mm-hmm. and trying to maintain, try, or trying to create and then maintain some kind of identity or some kind of community. Mm-hmm. That story I think is what defines that 1930s period. Mm-hmm. And I think, in fact, numbers start to sort of decrease as far as how many people are coming. It mm-hmm. begins to increase in the late 30s and the 40s in part because of the shift of the war and the changing, the, the growing health of the economy for the most part uh, starts to sort of make some changes there. And that's when you start to have more diversity too because you start to have more second generation immigrants coming in here. And those immigrants that had first initially gone to New York or other places start to come down mm-hmm. to Miami. Well, and you introduced this concept that it first threw me, and it's the concept of home labor, which both workers will espouse and managers and, and boosters and politicians. What is home labor? Home labor is basically localism, a sense of local nationalism, mm-hmm. and saying we are for, you know, we're for Miamians, and so we're going we're gonna to hire Miamians. 
And it's like, it's interesting because it's not something that you necessarily will find today. Maybe in some places, right? Yes. I think that I think that dynamic is not something that's necessarily unique to Miami, but but I think it's something that's sort of important to tease out mm-hmm. as a, as a perhaps a dynamic dynamic that's common to all communities mm-hmm. to some extent and probably changes over time. But certainly, it was the localism, and I, to identify this because there was these organizations that saw themselves as as home labor. You could find this even back in, in you know those efforts to create the the curb market in Miami in 1919 when they were like, we're going to only buy from local, uh, I think 1918 actually, mm-hmm. to buy from local sort of uh, producers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's it's sort of like that kind of buyer's nationalism that a bit others have written about, you know, buy American, right? It was buy Miami or buy Florida. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of that is, is a continuation of that in the 1930s, let's hire home labor. And I think the very fact that that's happening is a, is signifies a cognizance mm-hmm. of that division between those who are here and those who just come. Although I, I do quote in the chapter uh, on the chauffeurs where there's this debate in the city's council where one, one councilman says, you know, like, oh, you know, oh, these people are just fly by night. Another councilman like, we're all, we're all at one point we're fly by night, right. which I think seems to sort of capture this kind of dynamic of seeing who really belongs there. And I think that sort of defines a lot of Florida to this day. So yes, I think those elements that you, I think you mentioned earlier in the interview that uh, that we can still see today, that was there too, as far as the you know, distinction between those who are really are lo- locals and those who've just arrived. Well, and the thing I find about it is that um, we usually would think of hire locals or shop local as a bit provincial or you know parochial. That yes. that it's kind of narrow, and yet. The way you write it is the workers themselves and their representatives and kind of the local activists are able to turn this into a concept that empowers them somewhat and throw down a challenge to the local business leaders and the local boosters. Is that correct? I agree. And I would say that that's another way of understanding moral economy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an explicit articulation of, of moral economy saying we need basically to give a competency to those who are here. Mm-hmm. Give them a job. Mm-hmm. Have an opportunity to make a living. And so when you say you have the obligation to hire us, and, and I mentioned how Burdines, the department store, mm-hmm. had this moment where they're saying, yeah, we're gonna, we have a whole training session that we're going to train our lo- local workers and have them g- give jobs here. We always try to hire Floridians first. Mm-hmm. I think that's a recognition of the kind of that tension that exists in the area. Well, yeah, on one level you can say, well, look how good that you know, Birdine, Roddy Birdine was, or, or the family, or what have you, and perhaps there's some element of that. But I, I would suggest that it, it points to some of that aspect of how class harmony is useful, mm-hmm. because it actually, you know, hides that class tension and that class dynamic of trying to uh, to to appeal to to the workers who are calling for more economy, who are saying, okay, we want realization of this class harmony, a real a- opportunity to be able to make a living. And to live in Miami, because part of what I try to do too, a little bit at least, indirectly, sometimes directly, is to sort of allude to uh, this dynamic of trying to live full, a full life, mm-hmm. trying to sort of you know understand that one way we can also think about more economy is as expansive, and to, to include ideas of leisure and play and recreation as parts of trying to define what will what would constitute a good life. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important part of trying to understand more economy too, because they're saying we want to work, but we also you know, want to be able to live and, 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 and enjoy this environment and this setting. So I think Brian Palmer, for example, I, I quote some powerful sort of statements that he makes about 
how depressing it is that workers are staying so many hours in these in these jobs and they can't enjoy the sun and so forth. I think that's sort of a strange if you're living in South Florida. Yeah. Well, yeah, when you yeah. usually hear class harmony language, especially in tourist towns, it's from boosters telling workers not to strike, not to be activists, not to say bad things about the town, to trust us, let us be your leaders. And what you your research has shown, and this is, I think, one of your you know great achievements in, with the book, is that how workers are able to turn that to their own purposes. If you want class harmony, here's what we need to be a part of this harmonious community. Would that be correct? I, I agree, and I think I think what's hopeful about that is it opens up a whole arena. Yeah, for class struggle mm-hmm. because. I think too often class struggle is can be framed in caricature terms, mm-hmm. at least from from the right, in that you have to embrace some kind of Marxist class orientation. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's not valid right. as far as like the Marxist or class orientation is not an important vehicle or tool to understand class and to empower people. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that that one does not need to have the, that language or those. Those particular kind of sim- that kind of symbolism or those tools to be able to be someone who's engaging class struggle, mm-hmm. and I think in that way, for example, um, as much as it may be uh, somewhat discordant to understand Trump supporters, for example, mm-hmm. as as individuals who are embracing class struggle and who are sort of perhaps mm-hmm. deluded or what have you, or j- driven by other kinds of motivations, I think there's a dynamic there that is not t- entirely off that. There are traces of Trump echoing a Bernie Sanders class-oriented argument, mm-hmm. not as sharp and direct as Sanders, but instead of cadences of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, is an aspect of, of, of the shadows or perhaps mm-hmm. or the continuation of this effort to try to have class harmony. Because you would not be grudging, for example, Trump and his wealth. Right, mm-hmm. that's part of a class harmony aspect, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they're calling for the ability to be able to make it your own as well, mm-hmm. make their own living, and that's where that traction gets. Felt, like what Trump complains about NAFTA, what have you, regardless of how much he may have known about it or even cared about it ever in his life. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I agree. Yeah. Is, is that I and I think you got this from listening to the sources and and especially in this early '30s period, and it was the one place where. Um, you know, I thought I had I'd never thought about this. You usually think, like you say, class struggles put it either kind of a Marxist framework or, um, you know, kind of a conservative framework. And here you've carved out something new and, and in some ways very patriotic from the language you get, uh, something about a well-ordered community, but one in which workers are not oppressed, they're not subsumed, but they can enjoy the fruits of their labor in in language that is very much rooted in their own experiences and not in other theoretical concepts. Yeah, yeah. and even someone like Brian Palmer, who um, we should explain who. Yeah, who Brian, okay, Brian Palmer was a Floridian who got his education in the, the in the University of the South, came, uh, uh, and he came back down to to to, uh, to Florida. Uh, to live, try to live in different parts of Florida. Then he came to Miami around 1926. And he found himself out of, out of a job and not be able to work. And he had gotten a law degree, or at least had studied law in college. And so, and, and he had a, a, a lumber industry in Virginia. Um, but it seemed that it had failed. And, but then he comes to Florida and tries to make a living there. 
He's got a few sons. One of his sons, Brian, Brian Palmer Jr., becomes the mayor of Miami. In 1945, he had served in the military. So he was one of, part, one of the wave of, of mayors that had served, uh, got, got into politics, I'm sorry, uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 those who were veterans that got into politics after the war. Brian Palmer Jr. was what was that. And so he kept that name, Brian Palmer Jr., for, for, for years. Anyway, so Palmer ends up, you know, writing all these letters to the newspaper. So I just sort of like started to collect these newspaper, these letters and seeing here's this person who's like wanted to get his voice heard. And right at the, the point of the depression, he started helping sort of, uh, you know, continue this conversation about trying to improve conditions. And then this guy, Charles Nicholson, comes in uh, who ends up starting the, the County Unemployment Citizens League. And it seems like through meetings at the, at the Labor Citizenship Committee, and in letters to the newspaper, they got to know each other and they ended up helping to sort of like create this organization. So Palmer was basically a gadfly, a local gadfly, who spoke to the sort of this disparity of power, the inequality, the inequity, and was truly was inclusive in his, in his viewpoint uh, as far mm-hmm. as trying to, to consider the needs of all groups because he spoke in, to some extent in behalf of African Americans um, with their housing issues. He, he, he met with uh, Latinos in, in Tampa at a, at a meeting at one point, and he was impressed by them. And But he was someone who spoke the language of Americanism. And one quote I really like about uh, that he had that I, I use in the book is, is that he made a comment in, in this meeting that of uh, the unemployed leagues in, my, in Florida and Tampa where he said, you know, he will sort of claim that we're communists and what have you. He goes, well, you know, the words that were being spoken there, you know, things that we're saying we're basically the Declaration of Pen- uh, highlighting the Declaration of Independence of the Constitution. And essentially, those documents are a little too hot for the Reds. <laughs> and I thought that was a, a nice, interesting, patriotic perspective because in that meeting, they had unfurled a large flag and they were speaking in, in the shadows of that flag. Mm-hmm. So these individuals felt themselves as part of a longer, deeper tra- tradition that was inherently and wholly patriotic and were turned off by... And this is before the... The sort of the launch of the Popular Front right. of the 1935, 1936, and that effort. So this is, you know, before that point, and I think it's part of this sort of inclusiveness and the potential of some of the best aspects of social unionism. Yeah. I think Palmer, the Unemployment League, kind of were, were embracing that. Although they have to walk a delicate balance, or have to have a delicate balance and walk a delicate uh, fine line of trying not to upset the racial customs uh, of that place and time. Yeah. But as you say, he has a very egalitarian view. And I should just for the leaders, yeah, these last two or three chapters are on Pride Palmer. Again, as you say, a middle class intellectual, a bit failed in his own careers, but becomes this, you know, fervent spokesperson for the unemployed and the workers in Miami up till the mid 30s, where about your book ends. And, and also, um, the organizations in defense of the unemployed. You know, in some ways, you connect Miami to other movements that you have, like in Detroit yes. or in New York, and those are usually communist-led. But here in Miami, you know, which does have a small communist activist community, but you see the lead taken in the unemployment issue, and especially of really pushing for both the state government and the New Deal to create more jobs. And this seems to me is, is kind of where your the book reaches its crescendo or climax. I, no, I agree. Yeah. I think that's that's the structure of the book. I think it, yeah. it ends in this at this point uh, where, where they sort of 
end up getting some concessions, but there's it sort of just like peters out. And even though, I mean, it's not so unusual. I mean, I remember reading a book on, I think Frank Warren on, on the history, it sort of looks at, the, he made this comment about the history of failure in social movements. And I think that's an important aspect that so many movements end up failing in, in some respects. But, it, it, you know, in many ways, I as I was writing this, I kept uh, finding, trying to find inspiration in, in these sort of these discourses of hope mm-hmm. and, 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 out, and the ideas of outrage mm-hmm. and how, you know, people continue to push forward and, and, and keep trying to call for change, even though so much seemed to be, you know, impossible mm-hmm. or you're dealing with people who just seem to be tone deaf and not understanding what's going on. And mm-hmm. you can see it, you can, the, the frustration is palpable, but the hope is there as well. Mm-hmm. And, and to go back to sort of the idea of patriotism, part of that patriotism was the sort of sense of belief in the, the possibilities of the abundance of America, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, so I bring in technocracy, for example, and this sort of effort to sort of embrace uh, a, a, a viewpoint that we just need to organize our resources in a much more effective and efficient way to help all people. Mm-hmm. And I thought that to be something that was important uh, to, to, to that, that sort of fed this kind of movement and fed the, the, the effort to try to find a solution. Well, and when you think about the 1930s, as really we think about like Francis Townsend movement leading to Social Security or Huey Long, that there were these you know, kind of leaders that emerge in the mid 30s, and I, I, I had a tendency to connect Palmer and this unemployed movement, their demand for public works and their demand to put the unemployed to work and the demand for government intervention in the economy. They may look like movements that failed from our perspective, but at the moment, you know, the the possibilities were there for a, a much more expansive uh, programs and they, they they almost seem like crackpots or the, you know the, I guess with his letters to the editors today he could be easily dismissed in his groups but in the moment as you show that you you see them as very serious advocates for different you know ways to employ American abundance or to 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 spread it out no and Palmer had taught yeah. me so much too I mean yeah I mean he was reading Raleigh and Wiley. He was yeah. keeping up with what was going on in Congress. Right. I mean, this is someone who was educated and, yeah. and, and was connected with, with yeah. these flows of information. I mean, I've learned about Brunson and Cutting and other uh, Congress people and the idea of like some uh, a Republican congressman from Colorado, I guess it's Cutting, who was yeah. calling for the nationalization of banks. Like, mm-hmm. I, who would have really have known those kinds of – he was in tune with this. Or even technocracy was something I didn't really quite necessarily know. But I think – Jason Smith wrote a book about liberalism and sort of the New Deal and highlighting how, and it, it sort of seemed like it's fascinating how Palmer was echoing what Smith was saying at one point, saying that all these efforts to these public works in Miami are nece- not necessarily trying to help out the unemployed. They're helping out the economic development and growth, but not the unemployed and the needs of the unemployed. And it speaks to how uh, sort of the, um, that, you know, so this idea of like social, social Keynesianism was not something that was really being embraced. You know, mm-hmm. later on, military Keynesianism is embraced and, uh, and a sort of commercial Keynesianism is embraced. And that's sort of the kind of the, the, the ground, the, the, the seeds are there in the New Deal of, of embracing those other two. But there was efforts and dreams of hoping to embrace a social Keynesianism. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that spirit. And in fact, what I really found too fascinating in the research of this book was learning more about the National Recovery Administration, right. the other NRA. <laughs> the earlier NRA, uh, in many ways. Uh, uh, so I, t- I tell my, whenever I use NRA with my students, they think I'm talking about the National Rifle Association. Right. It's the yes. National Recovery Administration, and that, that the NIRA, National Industrial Recovery Act, 
had all these provisions to try to improve working conditions. And I was surprised that that helped trigger all these different movements. And my suggestion, you know, we know that unions were organizing so forth. But I, I think there's a groundswell throughout the country that for a moment there, many believe that they actually now have someone on their back to support them in these, these fights against the local feudal lords, essentially. And I think this is interesting because there's one moment I mentioned in the book where the, the, the uh, Chamber of Commerce minutes are missing between 1933 and 34, and an otherwise complete, you know, minutes of the of the of the, of the organization. And it's, I think during this moment, 33, 34, with the in the heat of the National Recovery Administration and the efforts to try to apply local codes and into the pushback that 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 they're missing. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't say. But why was that one year missing when I, I would have loved to have seen that particular year? Because uh, of, the, of the efforts that are happening. Yeah, your book uh, reminds me, as I was reading it, is that I think, you know, some early labor historians of the South, or sort of the new labor history of the South, did look at the NRA period in textiles when we have the general yes. strike and in timber, or few, we see this. But it's, you know, once... There, you know, once it's ruled um, or um, unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, and then once we get industrial unions, we forget that there was a radicalism or progressivism inherent, and it made me thinking, you know, I got to go back and look at the NRA period yeah, here, yeah, yes, yes. because there were, you know, a lot more movements and a lot more support, and it was also a way to get business in line with a, a program that would be would be more taking care of the community and and listening to workers situation and being responsive to that and i like the way that the leaders you show both in in palmer and his group and then later in the um unemployment leagues that they have there that this is before the wagner act and you're right. seeing a lot of activity there right right yeah now I was, if i could just add one thing sure, I, sure. I would like to definitely mention the hobo express right, right it's one of my favorite chapters of the book and okay. I, it's, it's one that yeah, you know, I feel like you know it kind of spoke to so that that dynamic of of that. What was the Hobo? Express? Oh, the Hobo Express. Oh, so the Hobo Express was essentially this law and order kind of mechanism where it was invented by a local detective, essentially. That any sort of transient that didn't have means or didn't have a job, or didn't have like money or didn't have a job, they would be basically put in a patrol wagon and sent out to the to the county and then kicked out. And so then the Northern County, like, like Broward the and Palm Beach, wrath, right? yeah, it was. It, they were in another. Uh, uh, so what ended up happening was that. The Day County would send their Miami would send their their uh, unemployed or the uh, transients to the border of Day County to Broward County. Yeah. Then Broward didn't like this, and they started their own Hobo Express, and they then would make an arrangement. They would pick up those, and they take it to the end of the other side of the Broward County, the Palm Beach. At some point, to get all the way for as far out to the border of Florida. So that chapter discusses the sort of this effort to control the population in a sort of apparent crisis. Now. It wasn't that this was sort of just happening during the New Deal. It actually was instituted in the, the New City Charter in 1921, where that the, the state government was going to be empowered to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think in part because they probably were reacting to, uh, I suspect, earlier movements mm -hmm. that were going on in that economic depression after the First World War. So I think they were reacting to that because that was a, a provision that was added that was not there in the 1913 City Charter. So you can sort of see it, an adaptation in, 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 in a consciousness and trying to deal with movement of people into the city, and one that's very sort of ruthless and treating these, these people in a very, you know, uh, violating all their civil rights. And I think this is something that speaks to a, a concern, um, a, a story that 
that people have mentioned the Hobo Express, but never have written that history. So I wanted to encase that history in a class dynamic. Well, do you, do you see it? I mean, it's a resort town. Do you see it as a case of where the Brewsters are trying to clean up the town and make it presentable to tourists, or as a case of controlling surplus labor? I think it's the, I think it's the former, for sure. Okay. I think, I think, so I have a quote where the, the man who ended up starting it, yeah. uh, Scarborough, uh, the detective, I forget his first name, right. he um, has this incident where he has a run-in with a local... Of, of construction workers yeah. because he had a side business where he did some construction work. And he said, like, if anyone crosses into my territory here, I'm going to use my gun. <laughs> and so so he was going to protect home labor, but he was against unionized labor. Right. So he was clearly benefiting from non-unionized labor yeah. and perhaps even bringing in workers. Yeah. So I don't think he was... But he made, he, he, would, he made the comment that the reason the home, that the, home, uh, the Hobo Express was necessary was to protect local labor. Yeah. And I think he was disingenuous about this. Right. I do think it was an effort to try to protect the tourist trade, very much in the same spirit of Sewell saying that we don't want cigar workers to be coming here because we don't want to sully the, sort of the area. So I don't, I don't really believe that they were trying to control workers from coming into the city. Yeah. I think they were trying to control the appearance of the city. Okay, so, and your book ends in mid-30s. You do have, you know, a few lines and a few paragraphs on what happens. And and just to move into the 40s and afterwards, you know, what 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 is the upshot or outcome here for Miami? Does what Obviously, we know it's a center of the Red Scare. Florida is the first state to pass a right-to-work law. Does this these measures succeed in quelling workers' demand for a class harmony on their terms, for a progressive class harmony? And do the boosters and developers and resort owners do they, or do they get their view of class harmony? What 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 is your? I think that story analysis? that story needs to be written, and so okay. that's what I'm working on in my next project now uh, on okay. the history of right to work, because I feel like this sort of this book is like the first half in many ways of this like longer story, and I think that that I suggest in the, in the, in the epilogue or of the book that there is an effort to continue uh, this, uh, this dynamic of workers organizing. I think they're very much rebuilding this, this uh, movement of, of workers organizing all kinds of fronts. So I was just looking at some research I had done uh, uh, recently because I'm working on this, on this project now, but that there's a lot of different kinds of service trades like dry cleaners and so forth who are organizing. Bus drivers are organizing. And, and, and these efforts in that 45, 46 strike wave, they're involved in that. In, 19, in the 1950s, there's a very successful uh, unionization of hotel workers in Miami Beach in the 1950s. So I think there's, a, there's a, clearly a groundswell of workers organizing. And, and the restaurant workers, Local 133, continues to sort of have this effort. Um, and so 19, in the 1950s, I was reading this sort of pamphlet they had where they're doing a reflective history about, like, trying to understand the history. Now, the, that union organized around, originated in 1933. And the people who were writing the history in the 1950s, could, they, they were saying, we hope, we wish we still had some of the old timers. <laughs> Which is only about 20 years later. But it, it speaks to the sort of the constant movement of people and a sense of sort of constant change, right? And not knowing exactly what's, what's happening. In fact, my piece that I wrote for Metropole on um, the uh, hidden labor history of, of Miami, or, or rather, the, um, I'm sorry, the, um, what was the word I was uh, using? Um, the archaeology of Miami's labor history. That there is this dynamic of things are just forgotten mm -hmm. because just like you know, bones being you know taken away and lost 
Same thing with the histories. So that that local 113 attempt to try to write a history, or at least an oral history in the mid-50s, and it kind of failed at that point, it speaks to sort of the, the challenge of writing about Miami labor history, but at the same time of the certain kind of vibrancy that continues. I think they were building on the shoulders, they were standing on the shoulders of the previous efforts. Mm-hmm. I think writing this narrative is important. Now, I think the story changes perhaps by 58 and afterwards with the movement of Cubans in there. But one of the reasons why I want to take my story to the 70s because I suspect that those efforts continue in the 60s and 70s. I think garbage, uh, the garbage trade, the workers organized in Miami as well in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. There's not anything really written about that. We know teachers organize in Florida. So we know that the workers are organizing in Florida and there's continued effort, even with the right to work amendment that's there. Mm-hmm. Now, clearly, the efforts to sort of de- to, to undermine unionization is, is, is continuous. It's getting more sophisticated. It's, it's strategic. It's, it's persistent. So I think that continues. And I think that sort of undermines unionization. But I would suggest that my sense is that, well, I'll guess here a little bit, that Miami is probably more of a union town in the mid-20th century than probably anyone would ever imagine. Yeah. And I think it's because, because if you think if the hotel workers were organizing, the dry cleaner workers were organizing, restaurant workers were organizing, retail workers are organizing to some extent, and construction trades are organized, and that sounds like a pretty organized city in, in, in other areas too. Longshoremen were organized. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a reflective piece that was written recently about the black longshoremen uh, union, union chapter, mm-hmm. uh, written in the Miami Herald about a year ago, and uh, they were talking about this longer history. Well, they've continued. Mm-hmm. So... I think part of this is that the, the history of class is too often a painful one mm-hmm. in the story of repression and, 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 and sort of a forced amnesia. Mm-hmm. Well, very well put. And again, like you say, that's another book to be written. But this book is, I think, an accomplishment. It, it challenged my like preconceived notions, the way you bring in concepts like a competency or a moral economy, the way that you tease out the meanings that workers and their you know, representatives and activists redefine class harmony. And I cannot recommend it enough for our readers and our, 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 our listeners. And um, I wish you the best of luck on your new projects. And thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been really a pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Email us at workinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at Working History. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Thanks for listening.